baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and once again time to talk about the Braves and Major League Baseball and what's been going on in the week that was as we wind towards the Christmas season, of course New Year's, the holiday season in general. So I hope everybody is having a wonderful time celebrating and fellowshipping, I guess, with family and friends and enjoying this time of year as we get set to turn the calendar to a brand new year, a brand new decade, and of course a brand new season of baseball is right around the corner under two months until pitchers and catchers report. That's right. I've invoked pitchers and catchers. It's going to be exciting to get baseball back, but still a little ways to go and quite a bit of hot stove, I think, to get to before all of that happens. But either way, lots to talk about on this show. A little bit of brave speculation as we await Josh Donaldson's decision on what his new home is going to be for 2020 and beyond. And we're going to talk about the big stories across Major League Baseball from the last week as Bill Rowland joins me in just a little bit and we get through our starting nine for this episode. As always, I want to invite you to subscribe to From the Diamond. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave a rating and a review if you'd be so kind, and be sure to follow along with the discussion on social media. You can find the show on Twitter at FromTheDiamond underscore. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can also find Bill Rowland on Twitter at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. And on Instagram, you can find the show at From the Diamond, no underscore there. And I am still at Grant McCauley if you're looking for some baseball photos and perhaps a couple of Star Wars things here and there, as it's also that kind of season for lots of folks as the Star Wars saga wraps up in theaters now. So we'll table that discussion. But if you'd like to talk about it on social media, I'll be happy to do that. You can also find everything, every episode of the show, all the articles and extra content FromTheDiamond.com is the place to go, so bookmark that and look forward to what I think will be a really fun season when we get into January as I start doing the Braves positional preview series, and we're going to take a look at each division in all of baseball as well once we get into 2020. For now, though, let's get our show started the way we always do with the week that was in Atlanta Braves news and rumors. That's a hot stove thing right there. Josh Donaldson still the big story, I think, for the Braves as the third baseman has not made a decision on where he's going to be playing and what team he's going to sign for for the next few years. In fact, we don't know how many years Josh Donaldson is going to get from the club that does win his services, but the going speculation in the industry has been four years is what it's going to take to get a deal done with Josh Donaldson. Again, he's yet to pick a team, but you have to imagine he's narrowing down the field. The Minnesota Twins are a club that's jumped in not too long ago as more of a front runner, if you will, for Donaldson services, or at least a club that's reportedly very serious about signing Josh Donaldson. The Twins, along with the Nationals, are the two clubs that are believed to be willing to give Josh Donaldson a four-year contract. Minnesota, as I mentioned, a late arrival in this derby, but a very serious contender for his services from what it sounds like. They would move Miguel Sano over to first base 
and have Josh Donaldson locked in. And as I've talked about time and again, when you look at age 34, age 35, I don't think those are the couple of years you're worried about with Josh, but what would age 36 and age 37 look like as time really catches up with everyone and for a National League club that does not have the option to transition a player into DH or simply use that to keep them fresh throughout the season, those are bigger considerations for clubs in the National League than for the American League. And we've heard the Washington rumors almost daily for weeks, which makes total sense. And while they were able to bring Steven Strasburg back, there's a giant hole in the middle of their lineup, and it's not going to be easy to replace Anthony Rendon, but I think Josh Donaldson would be the guy that could possibly do that, especially if you're looking for free agents. I think Donaldson's the best guy that's remaining out there, and a lot of clubs are going to have to decide the years and the money. Braves, though, are believed to be Donaldson's first choice. He'd like to return to Atlanta, where he played at an all-star level and was really the bat in the middle of the lineup that made things go for the Braves as they took off and won the National League East last year with him in the cleanup spot behind Freddie Freeman. If Atlanta cannot offer the years and the money, the Braves will obviously have to search for a source of power somewhere else. And there are a lot of different options if you start looking at trades and other possibilities and things that maybe have been out in the news and speculated upon as far as a a Chris Bryant player like that. But there may be somebody out there that Alex Antopoulos is working on a deal with that we're not going to hear about until it gets announced because that has been the way over the last couple of three years that he has run his front office. You do not get a lot of leaks. And when news about a Braves transaction breaks, it's typically because the ink is drying and the club is ready to make that announcement. So we'll see what the Braves are able to do. It would be great to have Josh Donaldson back. I personally feel like three years would be a pretty comfortable spot. But if getting it done requires a fourth year, I think that's something you've got to seriously look at if you're Alex Anthopoulos and the Braves. And that's going to be something they're going to have to consider as they decide what to do regarding an offer to Josh Donaldson and trying to bring him back to Atlanta. Meanwhile, a couple of former Braves were in the news this week. Julio Tehran has found a new home as he signed a one-year deal worth $9 million with the Los Angeles Angels. The Braves, you'll remember, declined Julio Tehran's option earlier this winter rather than bring him back for $12 million. I think the door was open for a reunion, possibly, but that never really felt likely to me, especially once the Braves signed Cole Hamels. Tehran's career began with a lot of promise, but he settled into more of a mid-to-back-end-of-the-rotation starter. And that sounds like an odd thing to say when you consider that he got all of those opening day starts. But we did have this seemingly endless debate the last couple of three years about his place in rotation and whether or not the Braves needed to move on from Julio or whether or not he was going to be able to kind of right the ship. I thought 2019 was a pretty good year for him, all things considered. And he gave the Braves some really important innings. And that's exactly what the Angels are looking for is a pitcher that can go to the post every fifth day. Julio Tehran certainly did that for the Braves, 30-plus starts for seven consecutive seasons. I think there's a lot to be said for that stability. What price are you willing to pay? Obviously comes down to performance, but the Braves were fortunate to have at least one pitcher that you knew where he was going to be every fifth day, and Tehran served that purpose and had himself a pretty respectable run in Atlanta, and now we'll begin a new one out in Los Angeles. Another former Brave who did not have quite the run that Julio Tehran did in Atlanta was Matt Kemp. He was acquired to trade back in 2016 and spent 2017 with the Braves as well. Kemp was traded away to the Dodgers, became an all-star in 2018, and then got traded again. He went to Cincinnati, where he was released in May, signed a minor league deal with the Mets, and now his odyssey includes yet another stop, and that would be down in Miami. Matt Kemp signed a minor league deal with the Marlins with an invitation to spring training, so he could be back in the NL East as he looks to win a job 
with the Marlins, a club that could use, I think, all the firepower it can get. And if Kemp can get back to anything close to his 2018 form, he could be a good low-cost acquisition for them. But injuries really derailed him again last year. So that's some former Braves news for you. But before I welcome Bill Rowland into the show and we start talking about all the other stuff going on in MLB this week, being as it's the holidays and Christmas lists are, of course, a big thing for a lot of folks, I was talking about my wish list on Friday over on Twitter. Francisco Lindor, Cleveland Indian shortstop extraordinaire, is the guy at the top of that list for me. He would cost a lot to acquire in a trade if the Indians will even deal him, and then he'll get some arbitration salaries over the next couple years that could be fairly large, depending on how that all shakes out. But getting a top-five player in the game coming into what I think will be his peak years and put him in a lineup with Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzy Albies and perhaps some others to be named or to be determined, that would really be something from a lineup construction perspective for a club that is inside its window of contention right now. Uh, we'll talk more about the trade speculation around Lindor here in just a few moments, but if he's available then you can do a deal that nets that kind of player and add it to a team that's already shown that it can get to October, I think it would be a huge boost and might be the piece that could put them over the top because the Braves felt like in the division series, really, they were just a hit away. And I know you can make the argument on the other side that adding a top starting pitcher, that could make the most sense because maybe that would have been the X factor that would have propelled the Braves over the Cardinals in the division series and perhaps further into October. But this is just a little wish list item, and I'm just of the opinion that Francisco Lindor's best years may be ahead of him, and maybe the next two or three years will be the best years of his career just based on him getting into his middle to late 20s and into those prime peak years. That would be an incredible get for any club that's able to pull off a deal to get Francisco Lindor. I just happen to think he'd look great in a Braves uniform, and if you're wrapping presents and putting them under the proverbial tree for a baseball team, I think everybody would like to be receiving a player like Francisco Lindor this winter. So with our bit of Braves discussion out of the way, or at least underway for this episode, let's table that for the moment and turn our attention to what else is happening across Major League Baseball. And there's been a lot this winter, especially compared to where we were this time a year ago, but it's still mostly rumors and speculation, but a couple of good moves over the past week for us to dive into here. And I want to welcome Bill Rowland into the show. Happy holidays to you, Bill. Glad to have you back again. And it looks like we've got some fun stuff to talk about again today. Yeah, always a pleasure. Happy holidays to you and yours and, of course, everybody listening. And, yeah, unlike the last couple of years where things are kind of slow in the winter meetings, it picked up. But uh, I think we're at that point now where teams are going to kind of pull back and maybe there won't be as much news after we get through this weekend. Teams don't want to have somebody getting traded on Christmas Eve and kind of ruin their Christmas if that's the case. But uh, I think we'll see some activity this weekend. And then, of course, things will pick up after the new year. Now, every once in a while down here in Atlanta, we will have news break at a honey-baked ham store, which happened a few years ago when Freddie Gonzalez was out, of course, the Braves manager at the time, just getting his holiday ham and just happened to run into a Braves fan and just happened to mention that Atlanta was signing A.J. Pierzynski, but the team had not announced that they had signed A.J. Pierzynski. So that fan had a great story and was actually able to break some news from a honey-baked ham store, but that has not happened since, so they've been able to seal up the source of that leak. Yeah, I love those kind of stories, especially in this day and age. I'm sure it probably happened a lot more than we know 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago when there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't right. Facebook, there wasn't this instant access. So, yeah, a manager, somebody would just make small talk in line somewhere and they'd figure well, it's never going to get out. This guy's not a reporter. How's it? You know, who's going to know? Nowadays, everybody's got the ability to, to break news if something like that happens. I love those kind of stories and they're fewer and fewer 
uh, happening because of Twitter and everybody being a little bit more uh, conscientious about that. But I love when stuff like that happens. Yeah, I thought that was a lot of fun and obviously, ultimately, pretty harmless considering what kind of deal we were talking about there. It didn't break the biggest trade in baseball that winter, but had to be kind of fun uh, for a fan especially as well to have the opportunity to be on the front lines, if you will, of breaking a little bit of baseball news. But as far as what we're doing here, let's uh, talk about a little bit of news. It's already been broken this week, and let's lead off way out in Arizona where the free agent market continues to move, and longtime Giants ace Madison Bumgarner has decided he's going to stay out west, but this time he is heading to the desert, agreeing to a five-year, $85 million deal with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Some thought that was a little bit of a low number for Bumgarner, and other people were surprised that the Giants we're not able to match that considering they decided not to trade him and maybe get more for him back in July at the deadline. But, Bill, regardless to me, Arizona signing Madison Bumgarner was a surprise. A surprise and a steal, to be honest, Grant. They backloaded this contract, so it's only going to cost them $6 million this year. $15 million total is deferred. Look, the Diamondbacks were only four games shy of the wild card last season. They just added a guy who's going to give them 200-plus innings. The ERA is probably going to stay under four. And it was interesting to me to watch his press conference, and he talked about how much respect he had for the Arizona organization. And look, guys say that all the time whenever they go to a new place because yeah. you want to make everybody happy. But he seemed really genuine about watching this team and playing against them in the same division and how he was really excited for all the young talent, how he loved Phoenix and how they brought out their dogs and horses during spring training. They couldn't wait to buy a house there. So they've got everything they need from this guy. He's going to come in. He's going to be a really good veteran mentor to some of their young pitchers. They still have Robbie Ray there, so they've got a pretty good top-of-the-line rotation. Again, they've got some holes. they got to figure out exactly where they're going to play Marte, but I think this keeps them right in the hunt for the wild card in 2020. They haven't caught the Dodgers with this move. LA's still the, the big bad team right there in the NL West, but this certainly makes them a very interesting team in 2020. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. And I thought it was really fascinating that, like you mentioned, Arizona was right in the middle of the wild card race, despite the fact that prior to the season, they traded away Paul Goldsmith, the face of their franchise, for about a decade. And then during the season at the trade deadline, they traded Zach Greinke to the Houston Astros. But wouldn't you know it, the Arizona Diamondbacks still had a pretty good baseball club despite making those two moves. And you mentioned Cattell Marte. I think he was one of the bright spots, obviously, for that organization. One of the big surprises, I think, in all of baseball last year. So, They've got a sneaky good club, but I do think they need a couple of more pieces. But getting that experienced starter at the front of the rotation, that's something that every offseason, I think just about every club or at least the top 10 or 15 clubs that are really looking to contend and finish off what they hope will be their championship puzzle, everyone's looking for pitching. And I think Arizona, as you mentioned, really got a bargain with Madison Bumgarner considering what other kind of deals have been signed not too long before that and what Bumgarner has done throughout the course of his career. So I really like it in terms of adding a piece that could bring a lot to that club and should make them better in 2020. And really, if you look at the National League West, maybe they can't catch the Dodgers. Maybe they can't win that division. But you get into that wild card and stranger things have happened. Yeah, and it's a nice, again, veteran piece for them for a guy like Zach Allen who's going to be able to learn under Baumgartner. He's going to be there for almost the entire time that Gallon is under team control. I think it ends up being one year that Baumgartner's his contract ends up before Gallon's a free agent. So they've got two pretty good guys at the top yeah. of the rotation. You throw in Robbie Ray as well. So um, I, I think it's a great move uh, for Arizona there. Speaking of pitching, though, the Indians – 
keep making trades. This time it wasn't Lindor, though. It was Corey Kluber. He heads to the Rangers now. Two-time Cy Young Award winner in the American League. Had a lost season because of injury. A pair of prospects head to Cleveland, middling type of prospects. What did you think of the haul for both sides, for Texas and Cleveland? Does it make sense for either team? Well, I think it makes sense for both teams. Obviously, the Rangers needed to upgrade their rotation with what they feel like is the one more piece that really makes it a dangerous unit. And if you look at what they've got, Mike Miner had a very good year. Lance Lynn, I thought, was very good as well. And they had already gone out and added to their rotation depth this year by bringing in Jordan Lyles and Kyle Gibson. And as far as the prospect return, really, I guess, Delano DeShields has been around for a while. So two players that went back, but Emmanuel Clays, who went to the Indians, a hard-throwing, closer-type projectability. I think it could be an interesting move for Cleveland if they end up getting somebody who's a high-impact bullpen arm for them. But when you think about Corey Kluber and what he's done there, winning two Cy Young Awards and being the horse at the front of what's been a very good Cleveland rotation for quite a few years now, I, I guess I was surprised that it wasn't maybe some bigger names or more quantity and quality going back. But it was just one year of Corey Kluber as well. So I think that's the big thing that a lot of clubs might have been looking at to start with, not to mention last year, the broken arm, the oblique injury, pretty much a lost season for Corey Kluber in a lot of ways. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what kind of Corey Kluber shows up in 2020, especially since this is a bit of a homecoming for him as well. Yeah, and I think the Rangers needed to make a splash with that new ballpark coming, and they missed out on Rendon. So it makes sense for them to bring in Kluber. Look, but that that forearm injury was kind of a fluke. The oblique injury, he probably tried was trying to rush back too much. I'm not too concerned as far as the injuries go, even though he's getting into his mid-30s. Look, five straight years of 200-plus innings prior to the injury this this past season. Uh, to me, though, for from Cleveland's side, this was about cutting money because they really didn't get much back. And again, you talked about it only being one year and then I guess a vesting year for him as well if yeah. he you know, pitches so many innings. But, you know... The, the relief pitcher that they got is going to be 22 coming into the season. He throws near 100 pretty much every time out. So he's an interesting prospect. Look, the Shields, he's the replacement level guy. He's not going to hit for average. He's not going to hit for power. He's going to steal some bases. He can play all three outfield positions. I just don't know what Cleveland's doing at this point. To me, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it more as well with, with the Lindor situation, I don't see their plan. That's what's right. confusing me is I'm trying to figure out what the plan is there in Cleveland right now. Well, if their plan is to figure out ways, financially speaking, to hold on to Francisco Lindor and hopefully keep him around for a long time, then perhaps moving Corey Kluber's money for 2020 and if the vesting option were to hit for 2021 as well, maybe that's part of the thinking. But the Indians are kind of in a similar situation to a lot of those middle market teams that really want to compete. But have their own financial constraints that are self-imposed in a lot of ways. I mean, there's some clubs that, you know, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, and the Cubs, some other ones, the Washington Nationals, for example, that will spend beyond that luxury tax threshold for a number of years, then maybe try to right the ship for a year so they can avoid some of the bigger penalties. But either way, you know that those clubs are going to spend money. When you look at the Cleveland Indians, they don't really strike you that way, but they have managed to grow a very good farm system, some homegrown talent, and have those guys become stars in the major leagues. They've made some really astute trades, and they've had some guys step up. But you know how it is. When you build all this and put it together, you have a finite amount of time where you may have all that talent on hand before, financially speaking, you have to start making some decisions. And I think that that's where Cleveland has landed. 
maybe you have 2020 as one more year of it. But I also think that, you know, long-term speaking, Corey Kluber, who's 33, about to turn 34, I think that maybe the best has already been had, and perhaps they felt like they needed to go ahead and make a move, especially based on the fact that last year was fluky, but it was a real lost season for him, and he could run that risk again, I guess. Yeah, I, again, I just I look at it and say there isn't some big monster team lurking in the AL Central no, where you just go, you know, okay, well, we're not going to be able to catch them, so let's get a bunch of young guys, and when their guys start aging out, we're going to be ready to go. So I, I'm just a little baffled at, at, at all the moves because I think that the division is there for the taking, but you get rid of Kluber. They're talking about getting rid of Lindor. It, it, I just, I'd love to know, and, and maybe people in Cleveland have a better uh, pulse on this than, than I do, but I, I just don't see what the strategy is overall for how they're dealing with this offseason. Well, let's talk about Francisco Lindor a little bit. The Dodgers and the Reds, both rumored to have interest in trading for him. I'm of the opinion, and I've said it on this show, and I've, I've said it online, and again yesterday, I think Lindor is one of the best players in all of baseball, a shortstop or any position. Just when you start talking about the guy who's not named Mike Trout, Francisco Lindor is at or near the top of the list for me. Talented infielder under team control for two more years is the story, but Bill, do you think Lindor will be the next man out of town for the Tribe? Kind of to your point, it, it is fascinating to try to figure out exactly what their plan is. Yeah, I guess if they're serious about really, really cutting back on the payroll, not like Lindor's going to make a ton of money. I think his arbitration number is right around $10 million or so. Yeah. But I guess if they really want to shed that money, he'll go. Now, uh, reports that are out there, uh, nothing that we're breaking news, it's all over the place, that basically the Indians have said to everybody who's interested, and I guess that would include the Reds and the Dodgers and, and anybody else who wants in on it, that, hey, give us your best last deal. We want everybody's here's we're not going any farther than this. this is the best deal that we're going to give you for Lindor. They want that this weekend so they can make a decision maybe Monday or Tuesday. And I guess if they don't get something that they think is appropriate, they'll hold on to him. Maybe somebody changes their mind and comes back in January yeah. and tries to up the ante a little bit. But they want their their best deals on the table this weekend. So if anything's going to happen, it sounds like it may come before Christmas for Lindor. I have no idea how serious they are. I guess if they're taking offers, they'll do it. But again, I go back to this is a 93-win team in the AL Central last year, and they're acting like they won 75 games yeah. and need to start over again. I don't get it. I know that's the fan frustration and the, and the real focus in Cleveland when you see this much talent come together and you do win some games, and then all of a sudden pieces start coming off the team, and you might find yourself in another rebuild period, but you're right. I mean, this has been a very good team for a number of years now. Uh, they were in the World Series not long ago and darn near won the thing. So it's hard to see why they would be in the place that they're in right now other than looking at the usual suspects when it comes to the financial projectability of being able to keep their roster together and, of course, the impact that free agency, especially for a player like Lindor, will have on this team if they're not really able to get anything for him and he were to become a free agent. I think that's everyone's fear at this point when you start talking about the star-level players. And I know Buster Olney of ESPN had tweeted that there are some executives that believe that not only Lindor but also Mookie Betts could be traded over this offseason. And it's a little bit of a different story for Betts because he's only one year away from free agency. But I right. can't imagine either of these guys going to a club and signing an extension those stranger things have happened again to use that phrase these are two guys that i look at and say they could be the next 300 million dollar contract that's handed out in baseball and that's got to be pretty hard to pass up 
if you have the opportunity to go to free agency and max out your value like that, isn't that what they play for? Yeah, no, no question about it, especially, I mean, there were rumors that the, the Dodgers were trying to be in on bets because they're trying to be in on everybody at this yeah. point. They just need another superstar, another bat. I would be surprised, quite honestly, if the Red Sox made that move unless somebody just you know blows them away with the offer that they're going to get. Um, but Lindor, two years, even if you end up not being able to extend that guy, if you're a contender or a team that thinks they, you can make a run over the next couple of years, I mean, it'd be hard not to pull the trigger on that. For the Dodgers, again, they're just looking for another bat, another star. I mean, they've been right there for the last four or five. What, they've won the NOS for seven straight years or whatever yeah. it is. So they're right there. I don't know that they need Lindor. Obviously, he makes them even better than they already are, but they're still going to be very, very good without him. Yeah, I agree with that. And it, just depending on how this saga plays out, it might be an opportunity for Cleveland to really restock if some club does call back in the 11th hour and really comes in and blows them away, that may be what they're hoping for, is that some team will be willing to just kind of mortgage its future for the present and allow Cleveland to be the beneficiaries of that and prospect talent in the process. Yep. All right, let's switch from the AL Central to the NL Central, where the Reds continue to make moves. This time it's Wade Miley added to their rotation there. With the Cubs a little bit down and having some question marks, can the Reds now be that sleeper team in the NL Central? I feel like they're going to be a team we're going to talk about a lot in 2020 when it comes to that division and perhaps the wild card as well. And as we went back to just kind of talking about what the Rangers did, not just getting Corey Kluber, but also adding the depth in their rotation. The Reds had an ace emerge last year in Luis Castillo. Then they went out and got Trevor Bauer, who admittedly wasn't great in Cincinnati after coming over from Cleveland. But Sonny Gray was more than a reclamation project for the Reds. He looked more like the guy that we saw in Oakland to start his career. You add a Wade Miley to the back end of that rotation, and they figure out you know who's going to be the five there. I guess Disclafani is the guy right now, but... That's a pretty good-looking rotation to me, and they've got a couple of nice arms in that bullpen as well with the Glaciers closing things out. Amir Garrett's a guy I've liked an awful lot. So it seems like the Reds have got the pitching to go with some of the bats. If they get that bounce back from Joey Votto, they've got a lot of good things going for them, and the time might really be now for the Reds to strike and jump up that pecking order, if you will, in the NL Central and make some noise in 2020 and maybe for the next couple of years, depending on how some of these other young players like Sinzel and Aquino, how they look over the coming years as they get regular playing time and become the true major leaguers as opposed to just top prospects. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that 2020 ends up being Cincinnati's year. They still finished when everything was said and done, 16 games behind the Cardinals who won the division last yeah. year. Cubs are still in limbo. They got to figure out and MLB and everybody has to figure out what's going on with Chris Bryant and the service time grievance that he has and whether or not they can move him if the Cubs are going to try to go into rebuild mode or, or where he'll be playing in 2020. Uh, the Brewers, and we'll talk about them coming up in a little bit, are still right there as well. Again, I go back to there's no stud team in that division. So obviously Cincinnati can make moves uh, going up the ladder there. This is a division that was won with 91 wins in 2019. Can the Reds get to that? Can they get to 90? I'm not convinced that they can add 15, 16 wins. I think they're going to end up around 85 or so and just miss out. But certainly, as you said, they are going to be one of those feisty teams that is in the conversation that about July, August, everybody's going to be like, wow, who saw this coming from the Reds? They're sticking around. But ultimately, I think they end up just shy 
but it's going to be the future is definitely bright. I don't think this is going to be a one year jump where they may go from 75 to 85 wins and then step back again. This is a team on the come, and I think they're going to be there for the next few seasons. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like you mentioned, the Cardinals, that's a team that took control of the National League Central last year. The Cubs are kind of in a limbo just beyond Chris Bryant with where their roster is going to be. I think over the next few years as they kind of make some decisions as well. But Bryant, I think, is the big decision that they're going to have to make. But some of their players aging out a little bit, you know, John Lester and guys like that. The Craig Kimbrell signing didn't exactly go the way the Cubs wanted it to either. No. I'm not saying the Reds are going to win the NL Central, but I do think that they're going to be a tough team and one that's going to be able to hang around in that wild card mix. And like I said earlier, and as we've seen with teams that get into that wild card and win that game and then are able to get themselves into October. You just want to get that seat at the table. And what happens after that, it could be a pretty special season. And we saw it again in 2019 for a wild card team. Yeah, uh, you get that wild card. All you got to do is win that first one. And then all of a sudden, you feel like you're uh, invincible at that point. And, and with their pitching staff, if they get uh, the, the productivity that they can from some of those young arms. You get into, a, again, a five-game series in the second round, and these guys start getting more and more confident, you never know what can happen. But um, I'm not expecting them to make the wild card, but I think they'll yeah. be in the conversation all season long. Well, the Reds are one of the many teams, of course, trying to punch their ticket and get into October and doing so by adding to their starting pitching staff. The Mets, meanwhile, signed Rick Porcello, the former Boston Red Sox, to a one-year $10 million deal which helps them pad the loss of Zach Wheeler at least a little bit. But I think it's going to be an uphill climb once again for New York in the NL East because, Bill, as we've both seen, there's some pretty good teams there and some teams that are going out, spending money, making moves. If they're going to make it to October, and we've said this about the Mets for what feels like the last five or more years, it's going to really be the starting staff that's going to have to do the heavy lifting for them. Yeah, it comes down to their starting pitching. And unfortunately, as a Red Sox fan, I watched Rick Parcello very closely for these last few years. And outside of 2016, there are a lot of bad starts from Rick Parcello yeah. um, with that Red Sox team. So I don't know that he moves the needle for them. But yeah, with when you've got guys like uh, Syndergaard and DeGrom and Stroman at the top three of your rotation – you're going to be able to stick around. You know, Pialonzo had a great year last year. They've got some bats there. But... To me, Porcello coming off a year was ERA was north of five. I think above five and a half, as a matter of fact. He's just a guy that's competing with Steven Matz and, and Michael Walker, who they also brought in um, in the offseason for the last two rotation spots behind those big three. I still think it's going to be a struggle for the Mets. Um, look, are they better than Miami? Absolutely. Are they better than Philly? I don't know, and I don't think they're better than Washington or Atlanta right now. So, yeah, they could be feisty and be in the mix and you know try to stay around, but I think by August they may be one of those clubs that just looks exhausted because the, their starters at the four and five stop, spots are just getting knocked around every time they go out. Yeah, that could be the case, and it's interesting because they brought in Waka, who obviously had a pretty high pedigree for the Cardinals for a couple of years, was a big part of some very good teams for them, but not the same guy he was a few years ago. Porcello, a Cy Young Award winner in 2016, albeit I think that probably could have gone to Justin Verlander, and I think Kate Upton had a lot of thoughts about that as well, but <laughs> Porcello, since going 22-4 and four that season, has proceeded to have an ERA that has been well north of four and, as you mentioned, over five and a half last year and has just really not been a guy that you look at to think, well, he could help anchor this rotation and do a lot. He does cover some innings, but even that has been on the decline the last few years. 
Of course, he's not alone. All of baseball, it seems like, asks fewer innings out of their starting pitchers. But an interesting move for the Mets. I don't know if I would call it an overpay, per se, but I don't know that they're going to get value beyond the one year and $10 million from Rick Porcello. But maybe the National League will be a little bit kinder to him than pitching, especially in the American League East. Yeah, that's a great point. Coming into the National League, I, I don't expect that his ERA will be five and a half because you obviously get the pitching spot. And and for the most part, you don't have the the monster lineups that you have in the in the AL East that he's facing. He's not going to see the Yankees, you know, 19 games a year. Uh, although Atlanta and Washington can both bash pretty well and Philly's oh, yeah. lineup isn't horrible. But um, yeah, I, I just, again, he's going to end up being the fourth or fifth starter because they're paying him 10 million. I think Waka only signed a $3 million deal. So which is easier to put in your bullpen, the $10 million yeah. guy or the $3 million guy? So I think he'll end up being the, the four or five starter, and then it's between Mats and Walker for that fifth spot. Um, but if they don't get production from Syndergaard, DeGrom, and Stroman, it's not going to matter anyway. If any one of those three guys has a down year or gets injured, I don't think the Mets have the depth uh, to be able to stick around in the NL East. And and certainly, um, if one of those three guys has an off year, they don't have another guy that's going to step up and, and really surprise you. I yeah. guess Porcello could do it maybe because we saw him do it in 2016. But, you know, nine of the last 11 years, he's made 30 or more starts. They haven't all been quality starts. Most of them aren't, it seems like. So the Mets may have to try to win his starts, you know, 7-6, 8-7, whatever it may be. Yeah. All right, another rumor cropping up at the winter meetings that has found new life. The Colorado Rockies of all teams looking to move their third baseman. We've heard this before. Nolan Arnato. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic says that it's a real possibility that he gets traded. Would they have the audacity to trade him into the division? Because you know the Dodgers are going to be interested. Yeah, I think the Dodgers, as we discussed, are the number one team. And you mentioned earlier, looking to go out there and make a splash, be in on every big player and Nolan Arenado, who just signed his long-term extension with the Rockies this past spring, that would be a pretty huge gift for the Dodgers. And a seven-time gold glover and a guy that can hit a little bit, I think would still be okay outside of Coors Field. It may not be quite the same numbers we've been accustomed to, but when Ken Rosenthal brought this up again this week, I thought it was interesting just that he, it was kind of almost like hedging the bet of the possibility of an Arenado trade because there would still be some serious hurdles to cross when it comes to any team trading for Nolan Arenado. He can opt out after two years. So that would pretty much take away, I guess, from some of the value of feeling like you've answered your third base question long term if he can walk out on his own. He also has a full no trade clause, which is super helpful. And then again, he's owed well north of $200 million throughout the duration of his extension. So there's a lot of different hurdles you're going to have to cross, and there's going to be, I think, a shorter list of teams that are going to be able to do it with a $35 million a year player. The Dodgers, to me, make the absolute most sense, but I'm sure there's going to be other clubs that could jump in if they feel like they can get this guy and lock him in and have maybe some assurance that he's going to stick around for a while. Yeah, I mean, it always comes back to the Dodgers, right? They seem to be in on everybody, whether it's Lindor or they were trying to get Rendon in free agency, the Garrett Cole. They were in on everybody, it seems like. I think, though, the Rangers may be a possibility here okay. because, as I mentioned with the Kluber deal, they need star power to open up that ballpark. They need a third baseman. Apparently, they had Rendon, or they thought when they went to bed one night that they had him, but then the Angels went to the seventh year on the contract. Boris didn't call right. Texas back, and he ends up out there with the Angels. So it's basically, other than the opt-out, the same money 
that they were willing to give Rendon to play third base for them. Now it's going to cost them money in prospects, but I still think Texas needs to make a splash. It doesn't look like they're willing to go to the fourth year on Donaldson, so maybe it makes sense to go out and make this trade and you have your star third baseman to open up your new ballpark. Yeah, I think it would make a ton of sense, and you want to make that splash. I mean, the PR is obviously good that you're spending, that you're going out, that you're adding to the club, making it better, and you think about the Rangers, and for a long time, they had that stability at third base in the person of Adrian Beltre. I feel like they liked having that position locked down. Of course, there's a lot to like about who Adrian Beltre was as a player and as a member of that team, and I feel like Arenado could bring some of that back as well, and if you're able to keep him around, and that's a big if because that opt-out is put in these contracts for a reason, and that is to allow a player to jump out and perhaps find an even bigger deal than the big deal that he's currently in. You bet on yourself, obviously. You've got to put up the numbers more times than not before an opt-out is going to be a discussion that you're going to realistically have or something you're going to consider. And I would be curious to know what does Nolan Arenado look like outside of Coors Field for a 162-game season because those splits, there's a huge difference. And I'm not saying he's just a product of Coors Field because his defense is also next level. But if all of a sudden Arenado goes from a player that hits 35 to 40 home runs and drives in 130 runs and and racks up basically some huge stats for half of his schedule, what's that going to look like? Is he closer to the 800 OPS player that he is away from Coors Field or the 900-plus OPS player he was at Coors Field Or can he find a new ballpark where maybe he can split the difference and perhaps Texas is a good spot for that? Yeah, you make a great point as far as the course splits and everything. And that's always the danger with a lot of these guys that spend half the year in Colorado. But as you mentioned, defense travels. So it's not going to matter whether he's in Colorado, Texas, Seattle, wherever he may be. Uh, That that glove down there at third base is, is elite. And again, I think Texas could use that. We, we talked about their pitching staff. Uh, you mentioned what they had done in, in getting Kluber and, 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 and that trade and with the rest of their pitching staff. They are a team that could be sneaky good next year if they get that next level bat. And you only know if he's going to hit well outside of Coors Field if you get him yeah. outside of Coors Field. So why not take the chance? Well, let's stick in the American League West, a team that will be competing, of course, with the Rangers and everybody else out there, and also some club in Houston that's been pretty good at the top of that division. That, of course, would be the Angels, who's already made a splash this winter. And this week, they plucked a member of the Braves rotation to add to their starting five. Uh, We talked about the need for pitching out in Anaheim. It still exists. It's very much a thing. But L.A. did sign Julio Tehran to a one-year deal worth $9 million dollars. At age 29, for Julio, it seems like a gamble worth taking for a team that needs to beef up its starting staff and add at least some innings and stability because this is a staff, if you look at last year, and I'm talking about the entire pitching staff, they had way more questions than answers. Oh, absolutely. I think money-wise, only being a one-year deal, $9 million, as you mentioned, money-wise, great deal for the Angels. This is exactly what you can't, you, you want to do when you're trying to figure out building a staff. If it works out well, they can try to sign him to an extension. But I still don't think it solves all of their pitching woes, but at least you know that Julio is going to give you innings. Ninth most innings pitched since 2013. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as of late, those innings, much like Rick Porcello, although not nearly as bad, haven't been great. The velocity's down a tick or two uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, the, the control is off a little bit the last couple of years. But as you mentioned, the Angels have had injury after injury after injury in their starting pitching. So he at least solidifies their rotation, the fact that you know every fifth day 
he's going to be there for them. I don't know that he moves the needle all that much, although unlike Porcello in New York, I think he is going to add value to the Angels. But I still like Houston, Texas, and Oakland as far as the rotations go a little bit better in that division, uh, more so than I like the Angels' uh, rotation. And if you look at what exactly Julio Tehran has been for the Braves, it has been a bit of an enigma. And I did talk about this before we get on the starting nine in this show. And Julio spent parts of nine seasons in Atlanta, the first three made you feel like, well, the Braves have found a long-term fixture in their rotation. He signed a long-term extension right after his rookie year, and he put together some good years. But after the Braves moved to SunTrust Park, he really has not been the same pitcher, and that could be for a variety of reasons, well beyond park factors or whether or not he was comfortable on the SunTrust Park mound, which was a story in 2017 that really kind of took on a life of its own. But you're right about the fact that Julio has really not been providing the same level of quality innings over the past few years though I did feel like in 2019 there was a time that Tehran was really contributing a lot to the Braves as they got hot and started to move their way to the top of the NL East to stay for winning that division and if you go back and look at pitchers who have made 30 starts per season Julio Tehran has done that seven consecutive years I think there's something to be said for that especially when you look at an angel staff that did not have any pitcher last year make 20 starts, which tells you what kind of turnover they had in their rotation. So stability is good, but the Angels are going to need both some quantity and some quality if they want to turn a 72-win team into a club that can be competing for a wild card or making a serious run at winning the American League West. Yeah, and I'm not sure that they're there quite yet. As you mentioned, 72 wins. I don't know that any of the moves that they made, although, again, getting Rendon is certainly going to help their offense. But does it make them 18, 20, 25 games better, even with Mike Trout and Rendon right there in the middle of that lineup? I'm not convinced, especially when, again, you're hanging your hat on a one-year, $9 million guy in uh, in Tehran, who, uh, yes, last year he had a stretch there in the middle of the year that I thought he was back to being what we thought he could be. But it's just the consistency. Can he do that for all 30-plus starts that he may make in 2020, especially going over to the American League? We talk about pitchers going from the AL to the NL. It's just as difficult NL to AL because now you are having the DH. You are having to face some lineups that are stacked up pretty well. I think he's going to help. I think he will be uh, able to solidify the middle of that rotation. But again, they're still hanging their hat on you know a guy like Dylan Bundy being able to bounce back and be something good for them. They might win 80 games, 82 games this year. I don't think they're a threat uh, to the top-tier teams there in the AL West, even with this move and the others that they've made. You know, a couple of other guys that are out there, a couple of moves that they could make, one of them that Braves fans would be familiar with, of course, is Dallas Keuchel, and American sure. League teams would be very familiar with him as well from all of his time in Houston. He's very familiar with that division, but not only that, but Hunjin Ryu is still out there. He was extremely good for the Dodgers. The Angels, I'm sure, are very familiar with his work overall. And those would be a couple of guys. I'm not saying they're going to sign both of them. But if you start looking there and adding a piece like that, say this year, maybe you make a trade in season. Uh, maybe you sign a bigger free agent next year, depending on who is going to be available. But uh, the Angels are going to have to address this pitching because they're going to need that in addition to Rendon and, of course, Mike Trout and others to find a way back into October, which I think they owe it to themselves, not only for the money that they've been spending, but you've got the best player of this generation on your team. You really want to go ahead and get out there and win a World Series or two, maybe more, to really celebrate and capitalize on having 
what is a very, very special time in your franchise's history. Yeah, with Trout there, and they haven't had any kind of postseason success. They haven't really been in the postseason. Been a while. Uh, with Trout, yeah, the last few years. So, yeah, they they definitely – and you bring up Rayu. That's an interesting one because the left side of that infield is as good as it gets yeah. with the glove, and he's a ground ball guy. So that may be something that makes sense. I don't know if he's asking for too much money um, or if it's years. I haven't really seen him linked – to many teams, it's like every once in a while his name pops up and it's a different club and then it just kind of goes away. There hasn't been that steady drum beat of he's going to end up here, he's going to end up here, and then he, he signs. So I don't know if you've got any insight on that, if you've you know talked to a red stuff that, that kind of points to where he may end up. But I really haven't. It seems really quiet on his front right now. It really has been, and this is the guy that led the National League in ERA last year, a guy that seemed like he might be a lock for the Cy Young Award, at least heading into July or August before Jacob deGrom took off and won it again. But, uh, you know, Ryu has been a really good pitcher for the Dodgers for a number of years. Injury has really been the biggest deterrent to him going out there and putting up consistently great numbers year after year after year. But uh, the guy has gone out there and pitched to a sub-3 ERA in the parts of six seasons that he pitched with the Dodgers. He doesn't walk a lot of hitters. He throws strikes. He may not miss a ton of bats, but he certainly does it enough. And as you mentioned, if you can get ground balls with an infield like the Angels have put together there with Andrelton Simmons and then, of course, Rendon, that's a pretty good recipe, I think, for success for a guy like him. But I, I just love the fact the guy, he pounds the strike zone and he's able to pitch consistently in and around the plate and hitters still don't know exactly what to do with him which in this particular era of baseball that seems like maybe a little bit of a lost art or maybe a bit of a skill that you can't really teach across the board Ryu just has something special there and maybe he'll be able to cash in on it he is uh, what 32 33 years old I believe at this point so maybe the long-term deals aren't there but you got to think that on a two or three year pact this would be a guy that would make you immediately better especially if you're a club that's looking to either make a quick turnaround or to take that next step. Yeah, absolutely. Because he is a guy, as you mentioned, that's going to give you the ability to run him out there every fifth day. He's going to take the ball. He's going to give you quality innings. And he's a guy that will grind out. If he gets you know men first and second, one out or whatever, you know he's just one pitch away from getting yeah. out of that inning with a nice ground ball double play. So I think a contender that's looking to solidify their staff, and I mean, Look, the Red Sox certainly need some pitching. I don't know if they would be interested there or not because they're trying to get under the luxury tax threshold. And I think he'd probably cost, you know, $10, $12 million even on a one-year deal. So I'm not sure it makes sense for money for them, but it certainly makes sense from a rotational standpoint for a team like Boston. Mm-hmm. But we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, the Brewers, five outs away from moving on in the NL wildcard before the Nationals came back and beat them uh, – in, in the playoffs this past year, they've lost 14 players. More than half their players from that 2019 squad are gone, but they did add a couple more bats this week as they continue to work in free agency. Justin Smoke comes to Milwaukee as well as Avisel Garcia. Can they get back to October again in 2020? I think they can, and I think that the Brewers have been a really good club about making smart moves, whether that's trades or signings, and not necessarily every one of them is the big headline move. I mean, this is a couple of examples with signing Smoke and Garcia this week, but they did have to go out and find some answers to the questions of how are we going to replace so-and-so, because they had to do an awful lot of it thus far this year. But they're also a club that's built, I think, to win – based on the fact that they have one of the superstars, one of the five best players in baseball, heck, maybe the you know, the best player in the National League in Christian Yelich, 
this is another case where you've got him locked in for three more years. You've got to build around him and maximize that time. I think that they do have a pretty good club put together. Pitching, once again, is going to be the question for them. And the real fascinating thing to me is not necessarily all the turnover for the Brewers, but the fact that you hear that rumor and speculation about, well, would they trade Josh Hader? And if they do that, what could they get for him? And I guess that would be the ultimate question they'd have to answer to decide, do we want to move a next-level reliever you know, without having to call it a rebuild? Maybe that's the direction that they go. So they could do some adding and subtracting and possibly end up being the same team they were last year or maybe better if they play their cards right. I don't have any question that the Brewers are going to hit. You mentioned Yelich. I'm real curious to see how he comes back from his injury. If he's back and healthy, as you said, he's one of the best five players in Major League Baseball right now. I worry a little bit about their pitching. They were one of the teams that relied so much on their middle and back-end relief pitching. As you mentioned, Hayter, 37 saves. I guarantee you look at anybody else who had 37 saves, none of them threw close to 80 innings last year. That's just the way – I mean, he's great because he can go and get you a a five – out save. He can get just seven out save. He's just one of those guys that's going to be relentless. But as we saw with Andrew Miller, that takes its toll. And Andrew Miller was Josh Hader before there was Josh Hader. And and he's kind of struggled here as of late. And I wonder if it's because of arm fatigue. I worry about that with Hader as well. They didn't have a single starter in 2019 throw 170 innings. Yeah. Not one. So that's a concern for me. I do like Brandon Woodruff at the top of the rotation, but behind him, Adrian Hauser is a young kid that they're going to rely on. They brought in Brett Anderson as their number three. Not real enthusiastic about that. I, I know that, again, you always have those couple guys that surprise you and that we may not know about that they're, you know, scouts and in, in front office know that, although this guy will be fine as their number four. It's the NL Central, though. And as we've talked about, there are no power teams. It was one with 91 wins. They'll be there. They'll be in the mix. It may just be how many one-run games you win, how many extra inning games you're able to win. It might be luck that ends up providing the Brewers with either a NL Central title or back in the wild card. They'll be there. They're 85 to 90 wins. That's going to be you know right there with everybody else. It's just going to be, can they win those games from their fourth and fifth starters when Josh Hader isn't available to throw you know, the last two innings of a ball game? Yeah, interesting move that they made this past week as well on the pitching front was signing Josh Lindblom, who had been over in Korea, was a 20-game winner last year, had a couple of really good years over there. But you look at his major league career, there's really nothing to write home about, which I think is why he went over to Korea, which a lot of American-born pitchers, I say a lot, but more than a handful will go over there and kind of reinvent themselves and come back. I know Merrill Kelly did it. Miles Mikolas did it. There are some guys that have been success stories to come back from Korea and kind of reinvent themselves there and then have major league success thereafter. So I'll be interested to see how Lindblom does in terms of maybe strengthening that rotation a little bit. Again, not necessarily the answer, but he landed himself a three-year deal that could be worth upwards of $18 million if he hits all the incentives. That would tell me that the Brewers saw something they liked there and they also realize, hey, we're going to have to add some pitchers here. It's not all about hitting. And David Stearns, I think, has been one of the better GMs in baseball the last few years at making these moves and putting together a pretty competitive club. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any question that that he's done a great job, especially with realizing when to let guys go, who to trade for, how to get them there. 14 players is a lot of turnover for a ball club, though. You don't really see it that often where a team makes the playoffs and more than half of their 25-man roster is then gone the next year. And if it does happen like it did in Miami those couple years when they won the World Series, they're not very good the next year. So uh, I still think Milwaukee will be good. I don't know that they're necessarily a contender in the overall landscape of the National League. They certainly are still going to be a contender in the NL Central. Well, if they keep Christian Yelich healthy, I don't think there's really a limit on what the Brewers can do inside that division. I think that uh, it was interesting to see last year that they were able to really kind of band together losing him and play good enough baseball to get themselves into that wild card game, even though things went sideways in the late innings there. Well, let's uh, wrap up things here on the starting nine with something that has nothing to do with rumors and speculation, but just good old-fashioned cash. Babe Ruth's bat from his 500th home run sold for over $1 million at auction last weekend. In addition to simply being a really cool piece of baseball history from the Babe, this bat is significant because he was the first of 27 players to hit 500 or more home runs in his career. Bill, I'll ask you this. What is the coolest piece of baseball memorabilia that you've had a chance to see in person or maybe the coolest thing that you own? Uh, as far as the coolest thing that I've seen, I've never been to one of those like big auction things. I've always been fascinated and wanted to go because it is cool. I don't have a million dollars to spend on somebody's bat, but it'd be nice to watch guys battle it out. You know, when they got that kind of money, I'm a sucker for watching the, the auto auctions on TV as well. When I'm sitting around doing nothing, just because I like to see guys throw ridiculous amounts of money around uh, and fantasize about if I would do the same thing, if I had that kind of cash. So I've been to Cooperstown. Um, and they have so many cool things there. Um, it's hard to just pinpoint which one kind of jumps out at you because if you're a baseball junkie and you go every new room you walk into, you're like, oh yeah, that's cool. I remember that. Oh, I remember reading about that. That's awesome. So, um, I've been to card shows and seen some, you know, of the old wool uniforms from back in the twenties with the Yankees or whatever. I'll be honest with you though, Grant, I'm always skeptical of that stuff to whether or not it's actually real. So it's hard for me to to say exactly what my coolest one is, but I love all of that stuff. And and someday it's on my bucket list. I want to go to one of those auctions and watch one of those bats, one of those balls uh, get sold and just stand there and kind of watch the guys that are willing to throw around that cash. Yeah, no doubt about it. But you mentioned Cooperstown, and that is ultimately just it's a dream scenario. If you want to go walk through baseball history, they do such a great job of curating I haven't gotten a chance to do that white glove tour that they do where they allow you to come in and and pick up the bats. I mean, obviously, they call it the white glove tour for a reason because you do put on the gloves, but you get to, say, hold Lou Gehrig's bat or Babe Ruth's glove or whatever the case may be for a lot of the cool things that they bring out for that particular tour. But walking through Cooperstown just as a, a general admission museum patron was it's always cool. I did it in the summer of 2018. I went with my dad. And we were able to just walk through the museum, spend about probably three, maybe four hours, just really trying to enjoy each and every room, each and every part of the exhibit. But for me, for a, a Braves fan growing up, uh, walking into the exhibit they had for Hank Aaron and seeing his locker from Fulton County Stadium, getting to stand in that and take a picture, then walking down and seeing as you went along the wall, they had all of these milestone home run balls. They didn't have 715 there, but they had 714, which I had never seen before. And then I think 755 was there. 
some of his other milestone homers, whether that was 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 as you go. And then you go down and then there's a big uh, cylinder-like case that has the mannequin that is wearing the uniform that Hank had on when he broke the home run record. And that just, I think to me, at least for a fan, it kind of takes your breath away because you realize what was going on when that particular uniform was in use and being able to get close to a moment that happened before I was born, but one that I've seen over and over and over again to understand the uh, the scope of it. It's just kind of neat to be that close to a piece of history like that. And you can walk through Cooperstown and find a gazillion things like that. Um, I remember going around after that and seeing the ball that Joe Carter hit to win the 1993 World Series, the walk-off. That kind of stuff is just really cool, and it sticks with you, I think, for a long time if you've been to Cooperstown, which you have. Yeah, it's one of those things that, as you mentioned, if you're a fan of any team, there's at least one guy in that Hall of Fame or there's one room that you're going to be able to go and appreciate um, seeing the stuff that, that, as you mentioned, some of the things happened before you were alive. Obviously, Red Sox fans and Yankee fans and Dodgers fans have, have been around. Uh, those franchises have been around so long, the Phillies, all those things. But if you go there, you're going to get an appreciation for when these things happen. What, as you mentioned, what was going on not only in baseball but in the country yeah. at the time, and get a, a, an appreciation for it. So that's the cool thing about it is it's not just you know a particular team's you know wall of fame or whatever it may be. If you're at you know at the Atlanta Stadium or up at Fenway Park or wherever you go, it's everything involved in baseball from the very beginning all the way through. I think of all the Hall of Fames, I think baseball does it better than any of them. I would absolutely agree with that. And I haven't had a chance to go to every Hall of Fame to kind of comparison shop as far as that's concerned, but it's just such a a hollowed ground. And there's so much there. And they do obviously rotate the exhibits. It's not just the same stuff year after year after year. They do a tremendous job of preserving the history of the game. I know it's probably, for a lot of folks, not the most convenient place, but Part of the allure to me about Cooperstown is the fact that it is a village. It's not a town. It's not a city. It's the village of Cooperstown. And when you go there, it's a baseball experience. It's like a pilgrimage, if you will, when you go up there. And it was fun going during an induction weekend as Chipper Jones went in the summer that I went. But I've also been in, I guess, what you'd call the off season for them. If you go in September, you can pretty much have the whole place to yourself. You go in July, though, around induction time. And it is thousands and thousands of people who make that pilgrimage to really celebrate the game. And I think that's a really cool thing, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you want to get with the masses, you want to go in the summertime. And as you said, being around induction weekend is absolutely crazy. But yeah, if you just have a a long weekend where you can get up there and, and spend a day or two, you literally will have sometimes the room all to yourself and the great thing about it is you can walk through at your own pace nobody's going to try to run you out of there you know after an hour it's not like it's time tickets uh during the off season we're like okay you have to be in at 11 you got to be out by 12 30 because the next group is coming through they're really good about letting you just kind of wander around and seeing everything that you want to see it is a lot of fun i tell you what yeah. you talk about it being out in the middle of nowhere the village and stuff it's a much nicer area than where the uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame is there in Springfield, right off the highway. Yeah. It's, it's not a great look there for the, the Basketball Hall of Fame. No, but Cooperstown, though, is, is absolutely beautiful, I think. I've been in the fall and I've been in the summer. I've been during the winter. I would imagine that they get a little bit of snow up there in upstate New York, but uh, just what a cool place. And 
uh, what a fun thing when you're able to connect with the history of the game, which Cooperstown does. I didn't necessarily mean for this to turn into a, a commercial or a testimonial for how great the Baseball Hall of Fame is, though. But when I saw Babe Ruth's bat sold, I just thought it's kind of neat to see the pieces of baseball history as they move around and in some cases get discovered after a very long time of really not being in the public spotlight. I think that's always kind of fun. And if you're into the hobby, as I've been collecting cards and different baseball stuff over the years, it's kind of neat to, I guess, as you said, I don't have a million dollars to spend, but I do like to see when other people do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, Bill. Well, I appreciate your time as always and have enjoyed chatting about all these different baseball topics with you. And I'm looking forward to jumping back into it, I guess, after the new year, take a little bit of a hiatus, I guess, unless there's a baseball emergency as far as signings or huge news is concerned, a little hiatus until we get into 2020. But I'm definitely looking forward to it. A 2019 season that's been an awful lot of fun and some hot stove talk that I look forward to picking up when we get into 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Again, happy holidays. Happy New Year to everybody. If we don't have to do the emergency podcast next week, right. uh, unless something major breaks. But uh, yeah, looking forward to 2020 should be, again, a lot of fun. And if you're a fan of the Braves or any of the teams in the National League East, I think, again, uh, it's going to be a great race and a lot of fun in 2020. It'll be interesting to see these final moves where teams, you know, get that last guy, that last piece that they think can, that can put them over the top. But always a pleasure to do the podcast. Looking forward to continuing on in 2020. All right. Well, that'll wrap us up for this episode of From the Diamond. As always, make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Keep those ratings and reviews coming. I really appreciate those. And be sure you're following along on social media. On Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find Bill Rowland at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, the show is at FromTheDiamond with no underscore on the end. And I am still at Grant McCauley there as well. This will be the final episode of the show for 2019, but I'm very much looking forward to diving back in in a couple of weeks as we turn the calendar to not only a new year, but a new decade as well. And spring training is right around the corner. Once we get into January, the countdown will really be on. I do want to say thank you this holiday season for all of you who subscribe to the podcast and follow along on social media. I enjoy talking baseball with you and look forward to doing it again very soon. Very happy holidays and Merry Christmas to all of you. I look forward to catching you on From the Diamond in the not-too-distant future. Until next time, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone. <laughs>